Okay, hello and welcome to episode 52 of Dan Out Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast family. Um, it is good to be back in the chair. I haven't done one of these since June, taping three this weekend. Not sure in what in what sequence they will come out, but one of the ones that I'm most excited about is the conversation I'm going to have today. Johnny Temple is the bass player of two of my all-time favorite bands, those being Soulside and Girls Against Boys. Then his, what I would call his primary calling or his, his nine to five is as the editor-in-chief, I believe, publisher, in any case, the founder of Akashic Books. It is uh, something near and dear to my heart, talking to people from small press, talking to people with a love for the written word, everything like that. So it's a conversation that should be ripe with low-hanging fruit. Johnny Temple, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. So both Soulside and Girls Against Boys all-time favorites of mine, but that's a 90s experience, largely, or even an 80s experience, right? And so I broke up in 89, so yeah, 80s. Okay, there you go. Well, both bands have been active this year, and let's start with Soulside. Let's see, what is it? The, the album title, I want to make sure I get it word for word correct. A Brief Moment in the Sun is coming out this month, yes? Yes. And you just did some road work with Verbal Salt. How's that been? Uh, great. Fantastic. Um, exciting to be... Uh, moving out and about in this troubled world and um, really, really nice to get to move around a little bit. And and uh, mo most of all, get to play music with my dear friends who I love. Um, really, uh, really, it's been really great playing a lot of music, live music, but also, you know, making recordings and stuff since the pandemic fell. The music's been, once again, the salvation it was the, this just occurred to me. It's not in my notes, but was the early, was any of the early soul side at, at inner ear? Yes. So was it, was it weird having to go somewhere different now? Nope. Okay. No, soul side had recorded it in her ear, but soul side had also like uh, hot body gram was recorded in Holland. And it's been so long since any of us have recorded it in her ear that, uh, <laughs> that it didn't feel. It's that, that whole West coast perspective as a big, like DC fanboy. It seems to me like something massive and, and a cornerstone has died oh. back east, hearing that, hearing that it's gone. Oh, inner ear is, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing like inner ear. And uh, actually, uh, with Akashic publishing a book about inner ear. Um, nice. Yeah, no, inner ear is, is, is hugely, is, is sort of legendary for good reason. Just simply for the good work and for the spirit of it, Don Ziantara just ha uh, has such an incredible uh, vibe and makes makes musicians really comfortable. Was it a different animal uh, learning to record together as boys and doing it again decades later as, as men well into life? You know, I, I was just talking to Alexis, uh, the drummer of both bands, about this. And weirdly, to me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel weird at all. It feels... The same. I mean, but but also keep in mind, while Girls Against Boys stopped playing very actively in maybe 2002, we've continued to play like nearly every year or every other year, every several years, like, you know, sh short European tours, very occasionally a U.S. tour. So we have been been playing together over all these decades. Mm -hmm. um, and so... So that's been going on. It's not like there was ever this complete break. Like Girls Against Boys never was never a band that actually like broke up. Mm -hmm. 
um, we would just sort of stop playing for long periods of time. I mean, we haven't recorded in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Soulside is, did have a breakup in 1989. And then we, 25 years later in 2014, we played our first shows back together. That was kind of wild then yeah. in 2014. But Soulside's done a bit of work since 2014. Right. So we've been sort of semi-active since then. Nothing like this new record that we're about to release you know mm-hmm. by far the biggest thing we've done since 2014 but um but it's really comfortable playing with those guys um, it's it's three of the same bodies yes yeah three three of the four of us are in both bands me scott yeah. Alexis are in both are both bands bobby's the singer of soul side and and eli janney plays in girls against boys it's it's and then the thinking that maybe the heaviest lift was for bobby but from everything i've heard he hefted it nicely you know Yes. Oh my God, Bobby! Bobby killed it on his with, with his singing on this new record. Um, I can only speak for myself. No one's really heard it yet. They've heard mm-hmm. a few tracks, but overall, not just Bobby Scott and Alexis, a hundred percent too. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure on vocals, of course, and Bobby just totally rose to the challenge. His singing is just beautiful. It's and it's really, it's it's as soulful as he ever was. And with just some incredible, incredible lyrics and melodies. I saw you guys at a garage in San Diego in the 80s. It was the first time I'd seen Bobby sing live, right? And Mm -hmm. I'd sing myself. And seeing this little dude just having fun, smiling, rocking back and forth, but never missing a note. Maybe just want to throw my mic through the wall. I mean, he's gifted. He was born... But that that Bobby didn't have to work for that kind of like yeah. presence and charisma, all that stuff. He was just sort of born with it. He was born with like a really nice physique. You know? <laughs> yeah, he was he was pretty. Most I'm not gonna lie. Hair. Yeah, doing Soulside this year and going out on the road with Verbal Assault, like you said, uh, Girls Against Boys had a tendency to be om- omnipresent. Verbal was gone for a long time and they had to start from a dead stop. And Soulside was a less active thing. Was that a was that was that a weird experience getting out on the road? I think to myself, everything because you know I, I've done some reunion stuff myself as well. In some ways, everything about it is the same, but in some ways, everything about it is very very different. I'm wondering if you experienced any of those because to me, for one thing, I mean the physicality is different now, but the audience is in a very different place too. You know what? I I, I will say this. I don't know how old you are. I just yesterday or the day before, I just turned 56. That's old. That's you've old. only got, you've only got me by a year. Okay. <laughs> only got, but my experience having never stopped playing music, but it became more sparse. But in my forties, I felt, and i maybe, I think my bandmates might share this feeling. Like that was the time of like, wow, this is weird. We're so old. We're, 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 we're playing, you know, we're, isn't this weird? You know, mm-hmm. like, and look, our audience has aged right along with us, et cetera, et cetera. To me, that was the forties in my fifties. Mm-hmm. I find that that conversation honestly just sort of slips away. We're just fully making music present tense. It's not, we're not trying to be, you know, we're proud of what, what, what came before us, but it's, there's not, we're trying not to have any kind of nostalgia trip. And that's why it's exciting to make new music. And so my forties things felt weird and like, isn't it, you know, but I feel like, I feel that this sort of really nice way in the past few years, noticing to seem to have sort of moved, 
move, move past that mindset or that, that framework and just like doing it. And I look around and I see other old dudes, hammered hulls, you know, incredible people just, and you go see these bands live and sometimes they just like, you know, knock it out of the park mm-hmm. with their passion and their energy. Um, so, 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 so my, that's the long way of saying like, no, actually to me, it didn't feel weird. Well, that's, I mean, that's refreshing to hear. The thing that I've always found myself circling back to is that punk rocks and, and anything punk rock adjacent, I wouldn't exactly call Girls Against Boys a punk rock band, but just sort of countercultural music, I think, became fixated on youth to its own detriment. It's really one of the only genres that doesn't, that, that acts like there's a, a moral obligation for the artist to age out, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the nice things about working in book publishing is that there isn't there a lot of, you know, people, readers and understand writers can can age into becoming masters of their craft. Other writers maybe you know, find it earlier, but there is not there's not a youth obsession. Uh, but I, but I, I will say that the, I think about this question a lot. And I do think that popular music mm-hmm. favors youth. And some of it to me is, is totally understandable because, you know, rock, rock music, punk rock music, hip hop music, pop, mm-hmm. these genres, it's like, it really are a lot of times that people's energy is freshest and mo- mo- more, most vital when they're, you know, like 18 to 31 or something like that. And, and I do think it is. But but the flip side of this is that rock and roll, okay, if like really rock and roll kicked in in like the early mid '60s, and so me and you, you know, like people came around 25 years later in the mid late '80s, mm-hmm. and now since then, since we entered the game, another 35 years has passed. So we've been playing rock and roll music for oh, more than half the time since mm-hmm. rock and roll has been around. So rock and roll is really still quite young. So that what we, you think that there's the youth, okay, the youth are just going to capture it. And us old people are going to be discarded, which is a little bit more how I felt in my forties. But now 10 years later, when, and rock and roll is 10 years older, you go to rock festivals, half the bands have gray hair. And, and there's some people doing some really, really incredible stuff, which is particularly impressive given that the aesthetics do favor youth. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like society loves youth. I'm really saying like, like youth is this big added advantage. Sure. Making urgent, aggressive music, punk music, hip hop music. That's aggressive. Um, I started the show during the pandemic. And if you think about the last two years, a lot of that went on at exactly the same time as the response to George Floyd. Right. And to uh, as the response to George, to the murder of George Floyd. Yes. And uh, to a lot of, of upheaval in the streets. And what was interesting in a lot of my conversations then, and what you just made me think about was that a lot of my guests, uh, I actually think Bobby was one of them. He was talking about the juxtaposition and activist mindset between himself and the opportunities to be a part of things that he sees his daughters have. But anyway, it was sort of about, is it time for our generation to shut up and listen? Are we supposed to be the voice of the vanguard right now? It's, it's funny because you leave me pondering that in music and versus activism. Because, you know, 
are we supposed to be getting out of the way for a younger generation? But you know what? A younger generation is always going to find its space. We could ask and answer the question there. I apologize. You made me think about something. Yeah, no, I think about that question you just asked. I think mm-hmm. about that all the time. And it's, you know, it's always, you know, you, you, you get older and then you, you feel like you're becoming a curmudgeon. And you right. say, kids these days don't understand. I say that shit all the fucking time. And when we were kids, it was absurd that adults would be like kids these days. And we'd be right. like, you have no fucking clue. So it's, it's, it is a really weird thing to see, to see, but I hope that, I hope that our generation, I, I do think it's like, we've had our time and, and ha- had a lot to say, but doesn't mean that we, we can't still contribute. <laughs> right. Artistically, I really enjoy seeing the evolution of musicians I grew up watching. You know, the ones ones that stay involved and that stay vital or that don't try to repeat past work. So I'm I'm thrilled to see what you're doing. Before we jump off music, a very silly, sort of a lighter question, but I didn't want to get out of this interview without asking you about it. As somebody who is in both bands, and again, both bands are people by three of the same members. But soul side to me, and this is an outside perception, right? has this very morally ascendant, inspiring, high-riding, we-can-do-this-we-can-save-the-world kind of vibe. Maybe via Bobby, um, maybe more so than the construction of the music, I don't know. The other band is very, hey, baby, you know, where's my martini? You know, this hip-swinging, grooved-out vibe. And there was a phase where I was obsessed with the way, way songs are written and rhythms are constructed in girls against boys. So that's not a big saying that, but is it weird to you how different the two bands are considering how much, you know, shared meat is involved? Yeah. I mean, I really, I appreciate you asking that question because I struggle to make people understand that for me playing in these two bands, Mm -hmm. soul side and girls against boys that share three of the four members. Right. For me, it feels so different. The bands feel so different and um, it's hard to it's hard to explain to people, but thank you for understanding that the bands are very different. Um, to to me, part, it's unavoidable. Part, you know? part, part of what makes them different, obviously, it's like we really do, listeners singing is so important. You, mm-hmm. you know, as your singer, you know, um, singing is so important, and and um, it's really what what many listeners really hear loudest or hear first. And it's, I'm not trying to discount any of the players of instruments at all, obviously. Um, but it is, it, but it, it, it is interesting. But to me, knowing Scott and Bobby, the two singers of these two bands, there's this incredible consist. There's this incredible line that connects the two things that they're doing, and you can mm-hmm. actually hear it in Soulside, and and also including the new Soulside record. Scott's background vocals mm-hmm. are really um, the. the the, the relationship between Scott's backing vocals and Bobby's lead vocals is a completely unique relationship between lead and backup vocals. It seems like it would have to. I can't think of anything like it. The only thing to me that's at all similar is Fugazi is the sort of counterpoint mm-hmm. between Ian and Guy singing. But, but Bobby and Scott is even, there's even a, a bigger sort of vibe separation between right. what they're doing. And and I think that that as a metaphor for what the, the way Soulside is, is I think one of the really great things ab- 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 about the band is that the way that it can carry this uh, 
Scott's, it's not working against what Bobby's doing because I think it makes them singing together, makes the song better than if it was just one of the, just Bobby singing without backup vocals. And Scott doesn't sing backup vocals on every song. But yeah, no, the vibes are, are very, very different. But Scott supports, you know, the revolutionary spirit that mm-hmm. Bobby inhabits. You know, right. Scott, Bobby, Bobby is like a um, very charismatic person mm-hmm. and he's singing to the world. Whereas Scott as a singer is, is a more in, introspective, abstract, um, po- you know, uh, type of, type of singer. It's, 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 it's great. Um, it's the only way it really makes any sense to have two bands mm-hmm. sharing three of the same four people as if there's something that's like markedly different. Or, or one or one or more things, and and I do think there's of course musical differences between the two bands, but but those differences are not as big as the vocal the vocal difference. But they are they are different, and it's funny because you know talking to someone who plays bass in both, in both bass is more prominent than they are in most in most you know music that finds its its genes in you know four piece rock and roll, in my opinion. I mean, particularly in Girls Against Boys, throbbing bass lines are the skeleton of the whole thing, in my, in my opinion. They're, both bands have a pretty rhythm-centric sensibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah, rhythm. We, we all grew up in D.C., so even though we were like punk rock pe- people, we were really into R&B, hip-hop, reggae music. Mm-hmm. And so rhythm, rhythm for us and a lot of other DC musicians as well as musicians in other cities, of course. But for us, it was, it was yeah, a little more, more, the song structures are often based as much around rhythm as, as melody. But, but, you know, that, that's, that, that always is an always evolving thing, but certainly as a bass player, it's nice to play in a band that has a, a strong rhythmic focus. And both, both absolutely do. Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and pivot to a Akash, which you're at 25 years now, yeah? Yep. Wow. How's that feel? It's kind of amazing. I, I can't even fully get my head around it because I think about, you know, my core inspiration has always sort of been Discord Records in D.C. And then, and you know, Discord's been around for so long and stuff. And then I was like, I didn't, I don't know how Akashic got to be around for that long. I also have had, I have two kids who are 15 and 17. And I think having kids is sometimes can be a bit of a time warp. The time gets all thrown off and disordered. Mm-hmm. And then of course the pa- pandemic turned time on its head. So for me, it's, it's, I'm still struggling to get my head around that Akashic has been around for 25 years, but, but um, what what I certainly have to show for it is this incredible library of books that we've published, really, really outstanding books. Then publishing company is only as good as the books it publishes. And um, it's been, it's been incredible to work with all these authors and, and I love it. And it feels very consistent with being a musician as well. I mean, I'm going to make you walk through the company slogan because I love it. And then I would like to get into the evolution, and I'd like to discuss some some particular projects. But uh, could you define reverse gentrification of the literary world? It's a hell of yes. a phrase. So this is sort of our tagline: Akashic Books, reverse gentrification of the literary world, which is somewhat tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. It's sort of grandiose. Um, 
but the idea being there's serious side to it as well, which is that the publishing world to me is very elitist, very upper middle class, upper classy. It's like a uh, birthright to work in the publishing business. Like you have to be sort of born into a certain social class um, to be able to like do the low paid or unpaid internships in New York city, you know, and then take anyway. And it's, it's, it's slowly growing to be more, more culturally diverse, ethnically diverse, but it, um, it's, it's, it's been, yeah, it's a pretty elitist, even though it's a very liberal, it's a very liberal business in general, politically liberal. So you have people that are voting for Obama and Biden. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's a nice thing that, um, to work in a left leaning, um, world, but it, but it is, imagine. it is sort of the elitist, the elitist side of that liberal world. And so our slogan is kind of, you know, you see like books really being marketed to very narrow segments of the population, mm-hmm. the well-educated, you know, generally white upper middle class, up, upper class. And it's like, there's a whole world out there where you don't see a lot of books being kind of marketed to other segments of the population. And so that's a little bit what that what that tagline means is just referring to just trying to make to make books more accessible. People across cultures, socioeconomic spectrums love music. Music goes right into your ears. You don't even and into your body. And you don't even need to, no processing really, no conscious processing needs to happen. Your body either feels it or it doesn't. Whereas book, there's this extra separate cognitive separation of the, of the having to read something. And so, but, but I think of just trying to close that gap and sort of help convey the excitement, the sexiness of books and of literature, the vitality of it, all, all the, all this kind of stuff. But I forgot to say the most important thing okay. is that tagline reverse gentrification of the literary world was uh, the person who came up with it is DC punk rocker, Chris Thompson, the original okay. bass player of Soulside, who went on to be the singer of circus lupus and other bands. Um, and, and Chris is a great guy. And he, he, he kind of, he came up with that line for me um, back a long time ago. And, and it was um, so big credit. Uh, credit given where credit's due. It's a nice piece of work. I'm going to I'm going to fall on my sword about something I discovered while doing my research for this interview because it, it, it plays off of something you just said, which is my awareness of, 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 of you know, the company was limited and my perception was limited. I basically knew of you as an as a noir imprint. OK. And a friend of mine, a fellow named Greg Mullen, owns Artifact Books and Encinitas here in California and carries carries your stuff. And I, I, I called him asking him for his take on Akashic, and he went on and on about noir. So there we are, still sitting there, right? Well, then as I dive into the website, as we're getting close and thinking I know what I'm talking about, there is everything from children's books with, you know, very, very, not ethnocentric, but very specific focus and designed to serve a specific community, clear down to upcoming art books by Chuck D. So, you know, there goes my perception of the Mitch Moore label on the East Coast. It is a broad-based entity. And, yeah, uh, we, we've yeah. had success with noir, and um, there are you're not the only one who thinks, oh, Akashic, they do noir, whereas that's actually just like maybe 20% of our list, you know. Right. Um, and um, so, 
in truth, we're like super, the books that we publish, it's super eclectic. Mm -hmm. We'll do art books. We'll do novel, lots of novels and fiction, noir, but also political nonfiction books with, you know, musicians, um, all sorts of, even some poetry. So it actually makes it a little bit, it doesn't make, it makes life harder in terms of selling our books that we do so many different types of things. Like if we actually only did noir, it would make it much easier for us to promote our books. Okay. But, but we're, we're burdened with eclecticism, which is kind of the only way I would have it, you know, okay. it makes it promotion hard. Was it started with sort of a hobbyist mindset and a side mindset, or did you jump right in hoping that this could be a career? It was a hobby. When Girls Against Boys signed a big record deal with Geffen in 1996, mm-hmm. we, we all had like extra money in our pockets, which we'd never had before. And so I teamed up with Bobby Sullivan from Soulside and his brother, Mark Sullivan, to start Akashic Records, an, in, an indie record label, starting with their band at the time called Sevens. And then out of that grew Akashic Books. I, I, and But the, this was all... I was like in the thick of my musical career, you know, really, really busy with Girls Against Boys, touring, mm-hmm. making music, all that stuff. And so it was a hobby. And along the way, Bobby and Mark both started having kids and, and dropped out of the company. But um, I, the company has since published books with both of them, um, great books. And um, I didn't even think to look at that. Is uh, Revolutionary Threads on a project? Hell yeah. <laughs> I've read it. Anyway, go on. So, yeah. And that hobbyist aside to Girls Against Boys, now averages how many titles? 25 to 30. And how many over 25 years? Somewhere between four and 500 books, I think. Oh, Lord. Well, kudos to you, sir. That's a job well done. Thank you. Well, now that we've sufficiently credited your diversity, I'm going to ask you something more specific, Mm -hmm. which is I find it an oddity, but a really impressive oddity that I want to start chewing on as much of as I can. But the noir series, and it's sort of ge- being geographically based. You kind of share share the story of that and what that is with people who are unfamiliar. Yeah. So you mean our yeah the city, uh, yeah well city noir yeah series. what is so everything from Alabama to Baghdad really yeah yeah back in two thousand around two thousand three, mm-hmm. I started having discussions with a Brooklyn born and bred author named Tim McLaughlin, a phenomenal mm-hmm. fiction writer who I've published. And I had already published his debut novel, Heart of the Old Country, which got turned into a major motion picture called The Narrows. But Tim, Tim is from South Brooklyn, sort of Bay Ridge. And he shared, though I was, I've only been in Brooklyn since 1990, which is a long time, but it's very different than having been born here. Sure. And Tim and I talked about trying to do a series of books that would sort of showcase the the pockets of neighborhoods in Brooklyn, because there's all these crazy, you can get on the subway in Brooklyn, get out one place, everyone's speaking Russian. You get out another place, everyone's speaking Haitian Creole. You get out another place, people speaking Chinese. And it's this incredible um, mosaic. And um, so wanting to do a series of books that highlighted that, but then we came out on, we kept discussing it and came up with the idea of doing a, a single book with a bunch of different short stories by a bunch of different writers, but each writer has to pick a different neighborhood to set the, um, 
to, to, to set the story in. So that ended up becoming this book called Brooklyn Noir. Mm-hmm. And it was an anthology of different writers. And across the world, all publishers know that anthologies don't sell very well. They're very hard to sell. So you've done a shit ton of them. <laughs> okay. but, but, but Brooklyn Noir was surprisingly successful. It won awards, went into reprints. The New York Times did a big feature story on it. And then it was very easy to, to go, oh, maybe we should do this same concept in Dublin and mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. and Delhi, India and Nairobi, Kenya. And so we started doing this international series with a b- bunch of American cities but also a bunch of international and sometimes we'll do a whole country or sometimes like we've done Trinidad noir. Um, Sometimes we'll do a whole state. We've done Alabama noir and Mississippi noir, but that doesn't mean we won't also do the individual cities within those states. So it's a geographically based noir series, but it's not just in the city. Each story has to occupy a different physical location within the city or state or country, because the books are supposed to really explore the a full city through fiction, through, through sort of dark stories, but not all clustered up in like the popular, you know, neighborhoods, like, you know, because there's, you know, every city, if you see how it's represented in film and television, there's usually like a few trendy or, you know, in popular neighborhoods. But what about all these more hidden neighborhoods that nobody right. knows anything about? Does this mean that in each in each locale, because you know we first off you're doing boroughs and in in their anthologies, does that nature or that construction rule out contributions that were previously existing? Then are you having to have people create almost in real time for each book? The stories are all new. Yeah. Okay. That 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 had slipped by me, and I'm hearing that and you're talking now. That that seems to me like that could make the completion of each book complicated or are people pretty diligent people pretty honest we've done over a hundred books in that series alone so we know how to do (laughs) it okay it's a it's there's certain aspects of the process that are streamlined but basically Mm -hmm. we we make an agreement with someone local either from that city or place ideally Mm -hmm. still living there but not always and they are the editor of the book then they go and collect the writers. They have to herd the cats. They have to herd the cats. Okay. That's what, but when I, when I make an agreement with them, I say to them, I've done this a hundred times. You're going to encounter these sorts of questions from the contributors. You can either answer them, so you, the, answer them or you can send them to me. I'll know the answer. Mm-hmm. Occasionally there's a new question, but if there, okay, say there's a hundred books with with 15 stories, I have personally interacted, made a little contract with, sent final edits to 1,500 writers about this exact thing, or, or their agents, but I, I'm deeply experienced in this, in this thing, so I'm not daunted. Sometimes the editors get you know nervous, understandably, about, it, ta- it takes a lot of work to herd the cats, but I just assure them we've, we've really, I've seen so much and worked with so much that I'm here to help you and I can be the bad guy. Someone sends you a story and, um, and they're a friend of yours and you really don't like it and you don't want to include it in the book, you know, let me be the bad guy. You know, I can, I can be helpful here. 
Yeah, what was the thing? You know, I forget who it's attributed to. And now it's here. It's a false attribution. But yeah, never trust an editor, that whole species. But it's a, you know, it's a necessary evil. <laughs> and I don't envy you. I don't envy you having to be in that position. Uh, this whole thing, you describing that process and me seeing behind the curtain and understanding the level of detail that's involved in it and the level of delegation puts bones on something or puts meat on the bones of something I'd seen on the social networks lately, which was somebody accusing you playfully of being an incurable workaholic. Uh, would you say that workaholic. an incurable workaholic? Would you say that's true? A hundred percent true. Yeah. yeah and, and also, um, I'm not trying to cure my workaholism. Okay. Not like, I mean, music, books, what I'm going to try to have like less music and books in my life. Why the fuck would I do that? I'm, I do have like a high energy level. I, I kind of, okay. I'm a little high strung. I burn, I burn a little hot, you know, so it's like I have an unquiet mind. So I'm, I, I like, I like to read when I say I like to work on the weekends, I'm not sitting there like drafting contracts, but I am sitting there reading or maybe editing. And if you, you call that work, I call that exactly what I want to be doing on a Saturday. Well, it's, it's administrative, you know, in my fantasy, when I think of, when I imagine owning a publishing house, like you do, is that you would just get into the sea of words and live out the romance of literature but it sounds to me like you're not at all bothered by the necessary construction that supports it yeah, no i like them good I for like you them. i like nuts and bolts you know okay is digital the enemy really simple question no no i, I mean I, maybe social media might be the enemy but i wouldn't say digital is the enemy i don't think like ebook ebooks to me are like a really good thing i don't okay. i don't prefer them for my own reading experience mm -hmm. um if I'm going to read a book that someone else has published, it's always not always, but 99.9% .9 of the time going to be paper. I don't like the digital medium for my own personal aesthetics, but as a business person or book as a book publisher, mm -hmm. also as someone who understands there are people who have a hard time seeing um, or a hard time hearing, you know, eBooks and audio books can reach it really expand who gets to read a book um, yeah, I've, I've listened to one audiobook all the way through in my entire life and i'm extremely grateful i did it was it was wayne kramer's autobiography but it did not feel like i was doing my work it felt like i was cheating yeah you know yeah yeah no i prefer reading on paper um but but i'm all i'm all i'm totally i've got no problem with digital i i, I mean i've lots to say about it i think when you read digitally i don't think that you read as deeply mm -hmm. so I, I, I can certainly make critiques of digital um, and there's, there's trappings to it of stuff I really don't like, but um, the accessibility that digital brings is, is, a, is a good thing, I think. The last topic I would like to touch on, and you got to be careful always to make these things sort of not, not anchored to the time in which they're taped, because this will air after the midterms. Um, it's one of three episodes I'm taping today, and I'm not going to start dropping them until around Thanksgiving. Okay. But you publish a considerable amount of political material. And I'm curious, what are your specific criteria to handle a political author or a political work or a political subject matter? You know, political nonfiction that we publish, mm -hmm. it isn't a whole lot of titles. We do. We published a book called Junk Science in the American Criminal Justice System, 
by a lawyer who works for the Innocence Project named M. Chris Fabricant. Okay. And it's representative of the political books that, w- that we tend to publish. I'm left-wing. My politics are left-wing. Um, as, so- am I, as am I decided, but I'm still curious, you know, how it works within the publishing house. I think, I think um, racial justice is a really, really important theme for us. Um, so, so there are certain areas of interest where th- th- this book, Junk Science and the Amer- uh, American Criminal Justice System, addresses both racism in a criminal justice system, as well as um, this isn't a cornerstone of the book, but like the death penalty. We're very much against opposed to the death penalty. There's certain signature issues, but yeah, um, it's, I would say though, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this well with my words, but I'm, I, and we are non-ideological. I'm very much left wing, but I, but I'm, I'd like to think I'm non-ideological. And I also believe in dialogue with people on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, it's not something I'm investing a lot of time and energy into it, but my point being, I would like, I always want my list that I, that I, um, the books that I'm publishing to have an unpredictability to them. And I guess, I guess what I'm saying is though there's, I don't think there's any right wing books. There's no right wing books that we've ever published, but there are a few authors that on our list who are registered Republicans, um, nope. And there, there's there, that would probably surprise the people who re- reads their re- read their books. Oftentimes, I'm talking about like fiction. They're not. It's not like political stuff. But it's important to me. Um, I'm, I'm proud. <laughs> I'm proud that that not every single author of the hundreds that I've published are on the left. Um, and 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 I do believe in. I really do believe in dialogue. Even though I'm extremely extremely opposed to racial oppression, gender oppression, homophobia, transphobia. And that's what we represent is social justice. But I do want to find a way for books to be able to not always be preaching to the choir. That's a phrase that I've used a ton this week in referencing preaching to the choir. And you've talked about unpredictability. And again, you said something I found extremely relatable. One of the three guests that I'm taping this week is an LAPD detective. Right. Um, formerly, formerly vice, formerly SVU, career criminals unit, everything else. I know him. I know him as a guy. I know him socially, but I also know it to be politically divergent. And he is the first such guest that I'm interviewing that I can really say that about after 50 episodes. Right. And it's interesting just in mentioning doing that, there's blowback from some of my friends on the left, or at least suspicion about why would I do this? But as you said, First off, you know, preaching to the choir is really not preaching at all. And, you know, dialogue is crucial. Thank you for raising the issue, you know. Yeah, a lot of people on the left are really, including people who I love and trust, are really averse to interaction and dialogue. And And I get it, you know. You know, there's definitely a big fuck you impulse that we all carry around and something that, that punk rock taught us is that there's a time and a place to be like, fuck you, you know, like get the fuck out of my face. But you know, life is nuanced. (laughs) And, and so, yeah, I, I I think um, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in dialogue, but I don't, I certainly don't have any answers or, or anything. 
it's funny. I'm, I like to keep these somewhere around 30 minutes, which is where we're at. And you gave me a great outline. If you're okay with us wrapping this up, would that work for you? Yep. Yeah. Because you are now the man who contributed to the Dan O's Says So Show. There is a time and a place to say, fuck you. I'm happy about that. All right. Well, listen, Johnny, this was such an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing it. Yeah. Thanks. I enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate the attention. Okay. That was episode 52 of Dan Says So. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>